Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to the Coffee Clatch. This is Mae Wilkinson and I am here with our guest tonight, Priscilla Gilman, who is the author of The Anti-Romantic Child. She's a mother of a child with hyperlexia, which is something that we haven't really talked about before on the coffee class, so we're very interested to get her perspective. Uh, welcome, Priscilla, and welcome, everyone, to the show this evening. Thank you so much, May. I'm really excited to be here. Super. Well, uh, let's just really jump right in. I want to know more about hyperlexia. My son um, used to point at the television screen, and, and even though he didn't talk until he was three and a half, he would point at the television screen and say things like association of the mouse type. And I was told that is hyperlexia. That so is tell hyperlexia. me about it. Yeah. My son, it's actually funny, May, because I was watching some old DVDs um, this past weekend that I had found of my children when they were really little. And my son was about 18 months old in one of the DVDs, and he was walking towards the camera saying, we couldn't understand what he was saying, and then we figured out that he was saying Sony, because mm-hmm. he was reading the brand of the camera that my ex-husband was holding up to him. Um, which was, And we figured it out, and we were sort of amazed. But... Um, Benjamin, my son, who is hyperlexic, was um, loved letters and numbers, was just obsessed with them, and would make these long number chains from 1 to 20 with blocks that we had and would spell words when he was a little over two, complicated words on um, the floor of our apartment with these alphabet blocks. And mm-hmm. everywhere we went, he loved license plates, he loved signs, um, he would read everything that he would see. And we thought, this is a little strange, but we were both English professors, and I actually read when I was a little bit under three, so we just thought, okay, this is, um, we're going to go with this. You know, he's enthusiastic about it, he's passionate about it, um, and it was, to my ex-husband especially, kind of exciting. He thought, oh, I have a really gifted little kid who's, who's reading, and we haven't done anything to teach him how to read. So people would ask me, sometimes we would be out with him, and people would say, what flashcards are you using? You know, what <laughs> system are you using to teach your child to read? And we were like, we don't know. He's just doing it. Mm. So even so, he had this love of letters and words. Yeah. But when he was reading, was he decoding Priscilla, or was he actually comprehending? My son did the decoding, but not the comprehending. I think he was not comprehending May, and mm-hmm. I think that that's something that. You know, we realized when he was a little bit under three, and um, I described this in, in the excerpt from my book that was in Newsweek, um, where I got a call from a preschool that we had taken him to, and they said that they had concerns because he seemed overly fixated on the letters and numbers. And I typed in some phrases, I think difficulty answering questions and early reading, and I found the American Hyperlexia Association website, which actually doesn't exist anymore, sadly. But... Um, as I was reading, I, I, I was, I, I, it sort of dawned on me, oh, my goodness, all of these things that we had thought were wonderful and special and unique about our little boy were actually symptoms of this disorder. And then we started sort of testing his comprehension. And although he could identify single words, like if you, if you showed him a word, let's say um, if you showed him the word milk, he would go to the refrigerator 
So that was one way that we did it to sort of see whether he was understanding what he was reading. But when it was a more complicated sentence with a verb and a subject and a direct object, he was he clearly could not really understand what he was reading. I tell you, I have goosebumps right now. That is exactly the way my son was. And um, as we went through the diagnostics process and some of the IQ scores, did your son uh, score especially high in, you know, pattern recognition and visual spatial? Did he have those types of exceptional skills? Tell us about that. Yes. um, He's always had an incredibly uneven um, neuropsychological profile whenever we've done any kind of testing um, on him. He actually scored extremely high on vocabulary um, because he could identify like single words if you said, you know, the hat, he would point to the picture, he would get that. But when it was something um, that involved social language comprehension, um, anything that had a sort of complicated sentence structure, he would do very, very poorly. So I, I remember looking at a graph, which you probably did at some point, of like mm-hmm. they, they sort of map where the scores lie. And, you know, so one line extremely high up towards the top, like 99th percentile, and then one that was an 8th percentile. <laughs> um, you know, it was like, whoa! Um, and it was just all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. He's a fascinating, complicated little guy with distinctive strengths and weaknesses. I, I bet I think it's I think it's fascinating the the graphs um, uh, I know uh, and it's not I I talk about my son but it's really a lot of children uh, Priscilla that are on the autism spectrum are like this a lot yeah. of them do have yeah. the hyperlexia and I'll take a stab in the dark here and say <laughs> a lot of the PDD and OS children um, are, are they just a little wired differently um, Yes. Sometimes they even think in graphs. When when my son says he wants to go to a teeny tiny restaurant, he's thinking about oh. a bar chart where it's a small, you know, where where he's comparing, you know, a small um, the the people that could fit in a small restaurant versus a large restaurant. May, that is unbelievable because Benji, like one of the ways that I helped him with sort of the nuances. Um, we, we called it shades of gray, and I would give him these sort of little shades of gray lessons, and I would draw for him a graph with like a word on the right-hand side of the page said always, and on the other side of the page never. And then I would fill it in with often, sometimes, usually, seldom, infrequently. You know, and he would, so we would talk about different things that happened frequently versus infrequently and how there was, you know, this great spectrum of possibility. And still, he will ask me things like, how many people can fit in this place? How many people can fit in this place? Mm-hmm. And he does think in this sort of spatial way about right. situations and circumstances, absolutely. Oh, I could talk forever, but I don't <laughs> want to monopolize um, <laughs> and, and the comparisons between our children. Uh, but so so this, I think the hyperlexia is kind of a manifestation about how some um, children with autism think, uh, and they, they categorize, and the, this, these, these patterns. Um, yeah. Is your son someone who, um, let's say you, you change out a, a picture in your living room, is your son the first person that will notice that it has been changed? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. If anything is slightly different, um, like for instance, my younger son might move something and I haven't even noticed that it's different. And Benjamin will come into the room and be like, wait, why did you put that book over there? 
-hmm. And I said, oh, sweetie, I don't know. I didn't put it over there. And then James will say, oh, oh, I put it over there. And he just notices, um, which is an incredible strength that he has, but it's also a source of frustration and, I would say, consternation for him, especially as a little one. When something was askew or something was slightly off, he would have real almost panic attacks. And that was one of the things that most worried me when he was around two years old, that his blocks would be in a line and on the sofa and the cushion mm-hmm. would be tilting and one of them would be falling towards the floor and he would start to literally shake and fix, fix, fix. He would scream, fix, fix. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just a constant sort of vigilance to make sure that he wasn't going to, because he was very happy and sunny most of the time. But when these things didn't go according to plan, there was a cup that we gave him that was not the typical cup that we gave him. He would refuse to drink from it because it was a different color mm-hmm. than the one that he usually used. And it would involve having to set up that uh, complex hierarchy in his brain again, that waterfall of of boxes and charts and categories and everything back in its own place. Absolutely. Uh, so yeah. now I'm starting to f- think about why you started to write about the anti-romantic child. You've got <laughs> extremely logical... Um, I don't know why people say autism or learning disabilities are a symptom of a disordered mind. I think they're highly ordered, maybe too much so. Oh, that's a great mind. way of putting it, yeah. So so you've got a very logical child who thinks in terms of bar charts and categories. Is that why you wrote the anti-romantic style? <laughs> well, it was a long process of getting to the, the, the point of writing a book, but I was, um, you know, I was a romantic poetry I was an English professor. Um, When Benj was born, I was a graduate student at Yale, and I actually did my interview for a professorship when I was seven months pregnant with him and began my job the next year, and I specialized in Wordsworth, Keats. I actually wrote on Jane Austen, too, which is a whole romantic period. Mm -hmm. And and I'm also just a very romantic person in the basic sense of that word. Like, I'm I'm a hugger. I'm very enthusiastic and outgoing and... um, ardent-hearted, you know, I feel things very deeply, I'm sensitive, and um, my, I had this son, and I'm also a little bit, if anything, a little ADD, like, um, I like a lot of stuff going on, and it doesn't have to be neat, and I had this son who was the precise opposite of this in every way, he was incredibly meticulous, um, he didn't understand the figurative implications of language, which was my specialty as an English professor, mm-hmm. um, he was not interested in playing in any sort of conventional way. Um, he hated to be held. He hated it when we kissed him and when we hugged him. And, um, you know, it's interesting. I haven't answered this question before, but the title of my book, I took a class when I was a graduate student called Romanticism and Anti-Romanticism. Mm-hmm. And it was about sort of attacks on romanticism in the romantic period, like bad reviews that these poets would get and um, people who criticized romantics for being too flowery and too and too sort of impassioned and and, I, and that phrase anti-romantic stuck in my mind. And the process of actually writing the book was that I was I was doing a lot of speaking to schools and daycares um, with the director of Benjamin's preschool uh, about early intervention and and then I did a paper at a literature conference about that I connected Wordsworth to my son and I gave these talks to my friend who was an agent and she said you should write an article uh, about this. And she sent it to every major magazine that we could think of, and it was rejected everywhere, May. 
everywhere. It was a great it's a kind of inspiring publication story because it, it was not going to work as a piece. And then she said, maybe this is a book. And um, it was a little odd for me to think about it because I had never written about my personal life in any way. As a professor, you know, you spend most of your writing time and your writing life and analyzing other people's works and other people's lives, in a sense. And so it was a little daunting and scary to me, but I wrote a proposal, and she sold the book on proposal to HarperCollins, and I had a book deal, and, and then I wrote the book after that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and the book is about your, I know you mentioned that it's, you know, about your private life and your journey, but, but what is the... What, tell us a little bit about some of the the um, chapters, along, main points along the way. Oh, thank you so much for asking that. It's, mm-hmm. um, it actually isn't really in chapters, which is interesting. It's sort of a continuous whole. But it really is, it, it started out being a memoir about raising my son and raising a son who was very different than what I was expecting my child to be and having a very different parenting experience than I was expecting to have which I really think is a universal story. Um, I, you know, he is a special needs child. He is on the autism spectrum. But I do feel that this, is, this has a universal resonance of how we cope with having a child who isn't what we were expecting or imagining or dreaming of and how the otherness of our children can actually be a source of incredible joy and blessing because he has made me so much more open-minded and flexible and accepting of difference in everyone, not just in children. And the story really opens up, and it's a story about um, my marriage. I I talk about my own childhood and how I had expectations of um, a very romantic time with my own child because of my own childhood, my own parents' divorce, my desire to create this happy, intact, loving family for my children, um, my dawning realization that my ex-husband was somewhere probably on the autism spectrum as well. And so the book talks about my, my marriage and my divorce and my leaving academia, my decision to stop being an English professor. It's really a journey of my own self-discovery um, as a result of everything that Benjamin has given me and taught me. And I also think that it's, I, I really see it as a love letter to my child, a celebration of him, an active advocacy for him in the world. You know, because I, I, people would say to me, are you concerned about violating his privacy? And you know, I do. I don't use last names. I don't name the schools. I um, I went to great length. He has a different last name than I do. Um, mm-hmm. So I really did. That was extremely important to me to preserve some kind of privacy and write about people in a in a compassionate and kind way. Even the the terrible clinicians that that we encountered along the way, a few of them, um, mm-hmm. I, I took great pains to preserve their privacy. But but I do see the book as something that I hope will help other people understand and appreciate and respect Benjamin more than they would otherwise, that they can see how far he's come, that they can see what an amazing, courageous, determined person he is. And, um, you know, that's, and, but I also think that I, you know, so that's, that's my own personal reason for writing it in that sense. But I also think that I really wanted to write, to offer hope and ideas and inspiration and fellowship to other people going through situations like this. I, I felt, you know, it's, it's so important to not feel like you're alone and no one else understands what you're going through. And, you know, I think, I'm sure you experienced this too when your son was first diagnosed. I mean, there's this feeling where you look online and it's so grim. You know, there's so many, just, you know, 80% of people on the autism sector will live in institutions. 
um, you know, just just very negative, very clinical um, language that was anathema to my romantic soul. You know, I wanted to hold on to that sense of the magic of my child and not have him be reduced to his label or his diagnosis. Oh, uh, yes. I I think so many of us can understand that. And I will also say that as as a mentor, um, we, we have that service in my state. And, and oh. um, when I talk to mothers, uh, there's, there's usually a... a a time where they're a little too shy to talk about their feelings. Yeah. And so having books like these that talk yeah. about the fact, affirming the fact that it is hard, it's not just the mother's imagination. Yeah. And by the way, there is hope. Um, and, and to take the parents from being fearful to being confident and hopeful advocates is, is a wonderful thing. But that adjustment process is, is a doozy. For all of us, and it's just kind of yeah. good to hear other people's stories. I have a question for you from um, one of our tweet chat participants. Sure. And they want to know: Is um, is hyperlexia just um, involve not comprehending the spoken language, or does it involve the written language too? So you said that your son could decode written words. Mm-hmm. But how was he with the, you know, with the receptive spoken language? Did he understand you when you talked to him? He understood somewhat. I mean, this was something when we first had him evaluated when he was a little under three. They told us that he has a, he had a severe expressive and receptive language disorder. Um, that was the phrase that they that they gave us. And he would when he communicated with me, he communicated only in echolalia. So if I would say to him, do you want to have lunch now? He would say, you want to have lunch now. So he did understand that I was asking him to have lunch, but he didn't respond by saying, I want to have lunch. Um, But factual things like that he would understand, but I think that complicated sentences, definitely not. And I remember, um, you know, 9-11 happened when he was two and a half. And I remember Richard saying to me, my ex-husband saying to me, you know, when the news was on and stuff, I said, oh, you know, we should take him out of the room because I don't want him to get upset, you know, by all these horrible reports. And, and my ex-husband said something like, well, I don't, think he, I don't think he's understanding at all, you know, what they're saying. He was blithely sitting there and playing with his stuff. And I still took him out of the room just in case, but I, I, I remember that moment. And we weren't really worried about it. We just thought, oh, maybe two-and-a-half-year-olds don't understand complicated sentences. You know, but but even simple sentences involving subject, verbs, and direct objects that weren't factual, I don't think he would have he would have understood. Okay, I think we also have some other questions on the line, uh, but I can't um, I can't hear anybody asking questions. But I can hear a um, I can see the the tweet chat. Um, questions on my computer screen. So if anyone has any questions and I can't get through to the line, uh, feel free to, to um, enter them onto the tweet chat. Um, all right, so this book sounds terrific, and you've gotten a lot of recognition. You were, I guess, um, featured in Newsweek. You were on the one of the morning uh, national morning shows. Yeah. So... I think um I think that's pretty pretty nifty there. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty nifty. It was. I mean, Newsweek is a magazine that I that I really admire and 
um, it was just an incredible privilege to work with them. And I, I, we crafted like an excerpt from the book, and it came out a week before the book came out. And then I was on MSNBC during Autism Awareness Month. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently, it's, I've been on NPR, and I've been doing um, – the book was a, on NPR's Morning Edition. It was a must-read pick. And it's been, really, it's been really wonderful. I mean, it's a slow process. It's not getting a lot of print reviews. Um, which is a little disappointing because we want to reach as many people as possible. But um, I have to say it's radio like this and um, my Facebook page, which um, I just adore the people on my page. I have an amazing community of people, and um, it's so inspiring to see what they have to say and sharing their own stories and their own responses. So it's been really, really, really gratifying. If I can help anyone feel that they're not alone and that there is hope, um, and, and, you know, May, I think this is really, you know, we have, we, you and I have kids on the spectrum. My other son is dyslexic and um, mildly, has mild ADD. So I really have two kids with special needs. And, you know, I think that, uh, I hope that the book can speak to all families, well, families of all children, really. But, you know, so many of the things that we go through, the dawning realization you know, you know the, da- the moments of the dawning realization, and you look back at, at your experience with your child, and you, and you have to think about it in a different way. Right. Um, the fear, am I going to be able to provide enough help for this child? Our anxiety about schools, what Correct. school is going to be right. Um, May, I want to just interrupt. We have a caller who's been waiting. Um, let's see if we can bring her on. Area code 309, do you hear us? I hear you. Terrific. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Um, my son has his diagnosed uh, two years ago with ADD and Asperger's. Oh wow! And uh, he has—it's it's almost impossible when he's reading to get him to comprehend anything. Yeah. And so when I saw the hyperlexia and I read the description of it, I said, "Well, if that's just the spoken language, that doesn't fit my son. But if it also includes the written language, that fits him. I mean, he—we just really struggle with that." It definitely can fit. Um, it, it definitely can because my son still his his biggest area of challenge. He's now twelve. His understanding abstract language, figurative language when he oh, reads, yeah. yep. idioms, jokes. Yep. When is someone serious and when is someone joking? Um, and that is just as true in reading as it is in conversation. He's so yeah, the hyperlexia really really does. I think. Um, it explains some of your son's difficulties. We'll have to, when we have our IEP meeting this coming fall, I'll have to make sure I bring that up. It would be very helpful, yes, because you know I've had um, people in our IEP meetings every year um, say to me, oh, but your son is decoding at an extremely advanced level, so we don't need to give him these services. Right. Priscilla, Priscilla, how was the hyperlexia diagnosed? Is this River City, by the way, the caller in? That's me. Hi, River City. Uh, so, so Priscilla, how did you get the hyperlexia diagnosis so that she can go to her IEP meeting and say, look, this is what the issue is. It's not um, a cognitive issue. It is it is this, this hyperlexia thing going on. So yeah. how did you get the diagnosis? I got the I, – I read about it online, and unfortunately that organization doesn't exist anymore, but I would suggest Googling it. Um, there's a good Wikipedia entry on it that has links to books that have been written about it and articles about it. Um, I think now when you Google it, it will bring up my music page probably within the, within the top ten results. Um, and I gave an interview to The Daily Caller where I talked about 
there's a couple of listservs for hyper- parents with kids that have hyperlexia. If you Google my name and Daily Caller, okay. um, I think the links are included in that piece. I don't know them off the top of my head, but they're two really good parent listservs. Right, and if you strike out there, um, Kennedy Krieger was very helpful to me. Yeah. Um, and if you are looking for accommodations and ways to teach your child, um, if he or she does have that pattern recognition that we're talking about, are you familiar with visual and graphic organizers? Yes. Yeah. Priscilla, is that, is that something you used for your child? Absolutely. So, um, okay, then why, I'm going to turn it back over to you to <gasps> tell River City about some of the things that she can include in her IEP for her for her son with hyperlexia. So back to you, Priscilla. Thank you, May. I would say, how old is your son? He's 13. He's 13, but Benji is 12. How about that? Um, yeah. I would say the most important things are extra time um, on tests and any kind of instruction, um, being able to use a graphic organizer when reading. Like what really helps Benj is using a highlighter to highlight sort of main points. Mm-hmm. Um, and the school, sometimes the schools don't allow you to do that with books that are in the classroom, but he needs right. to be given his own book that he's allowed to mark up with his own visual system for figuring out the difference between the main idea and the supporting ideas. Um, there's a lot of good resources. I would say the most important thing is also instructions during the day, allowing him to carry them on written note cards. My son walks around his school with a pack of note cards sort of saying, you know, when you get to this situation, remember these steps. Mm -hmm. One, do this. Two, do this. And he can't necessarily remember if he doesn't look at the visual. So it's having that visual in front of him. I also think timers are very useful. Um, because they do, because especially with the ADD, which my which my um, younger son has mildly, who's not on the spectrum, but he has mild ADD, using a timer so that he doesn't get off task. You know, okay, five minutes have passed. I really need to focus on answering this question now. Um, so that's the mo- and, and I also think any support that you can get with a speech therapist, possibly within the school, helping him with idioms and figurative language and abstract language. Um, mm-hmm. That we wrote into the IEP that he needed to be able to have speech therapy to work on that stuff one on one with the speech therapist, if possible. For idioms and what? And um, abstract language? Abstract language, figurative language, metaphors and similes, um, anything that's not just clear cut and factual. They need a lot right. of support with. And I think in English, like in literature classes, it's the hardest. Um, stories that don't, that are not just direct and to the point. Right. Yeah. You're calling stay on the line. I'm sorry, it's Marianne. I have um, just a few questions because I've never heard of this before. Sure. Um, so, you know, what I'm think, wondering is, is hyperlexia um, a standalone diagnosis at all, or is it always found um, comorbid with other disorders? And um, are the social deficits, um, it, like, are the children nonverbal, or most of them nonverbal? Are there social deficits involved? You know, I'm just trying to, to get a, a better understanding of, um, you know, how a, a child that, say, has Asperger's would differ from a child that has hyperlexia. Um, that's a great question, Marianne. I was asked that question on NPR last week. You know, this sounds like Asperger's. Um, I think there are some hyperlexic kids that are nonverbal. There are some hyperlexic kids that are highly verbal, like young kids with Asperger's. Um, when I first discovered hyperlexia, there was a raging debate about whether it could be a standalone diagnosis. 
that was sort of the major topic on the listservs that I was on. And I think now in 2011, it's pretty much uh, understood to be if, if a child is hyperlexic, they are somewhere on the autism spectrum. But there's right. not a lot of it's not a, it's not a discrete diagnosis um, usually. But I was given it as a discrete diagnosis. Um, and I was also given a lot of other diagnoses of motor delays and sensory issues and all sorts of things. But I think um, that, you know, it's, you could take your child to a clinician who could say your child has Asperger's. Another one could say it's hyperlexia. It, you know, that's really what it boils down to is yeah. that, you know, just like mental illness, you know, bipolar, yeah. OCD, everything is very, you know, they're finding now that it's very dimensional and that these really yeah. aren't separate disorders. And I yeah. think that, you know, in th- this is its own little dimensional world mm-hmm. with the Asperger's. And, you know, yep. my listening to you, I'm going back in my head to the interview I did with Dr. Um, Russell Barkley. And, yeah. you know, a lot of it sounds like executive functioning. And, you know, the time, yep. the, the difficulties with time also oh, is yeah. very ADD. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Marianne, you know what I think it is? I, I think that um, our kids um, process things um, vertically, mm-hmm. and when you take, um, you know, it, 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 it's just some sort of a, a hierarchy that they have in their heads, a way that they categorize things. Mm-hmm. So to get them to think um, either horizontally or nonlinearly, it, it takes a lot of practice. I think we talked last time, music helped my son um, be able to think more horizontally rather than a rigid hierarchy or a waterfall from top to bottom. Um, The visual organizers where you put the main idea in the circle and then you draw arrows out for the details. Or you do the stop sign, which is main idea is green, details are blue, summary is stop, and it's red. You know, all of those things kind of help with all of the – to be able to have the mind process – up, down, across, diagonally, and round right. and round and round, right. and um, it's it's really uh, um, a wonderful thing to to watch how they do it. But it's so frustrating when they can't get past their particular vertical silo into the next uh-huh. realm. You know, I know. I was also wondering, Priscilla, what um, are the outcomes? I mean, we, with these, these call, are you still on the line? I'm here. Okay, you said your son was 13. Right. Um, So has he had interventions and therapies through the school? And, um, Priscilla, what are the outcomes for kids that that do get services? He's had – he has a school social worker that works with him, but I wouldn't call it therapy. He has some accommodations as far as time uh, for certain tasks, but no, no therapy. I um I think in general the outcomes for kids with hyperlexia are tend to be the kids with hyperlexia tend to be more on the high functioning end of the autism spectrum, um, because it's obviously a gift that we can use to help unlock so many other things that they might be having difficulty with. Um, so I think the outcomes are generally more favorable than for some other kids on the spectrum. But um, but I think that that's changing all the time, and I think that some of the strategies that work with kids who are reading early can be used with other kids as they get older. You know, a lot of these kids will respond better to things that are written down rather than things that they have to process through their ears. Right. You know, so I was thinking it sounds like um, hyperlexia, that these kids may more be in the group of pattern thinkers. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Um, yeah. You know, and if you yeah. foster that and if you go into, you know, interests and careers that, you know, would have to do with the type of thing, you'd graphs and data and things like that, they'd probably be highly successful. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because my ex-husband's family, we have a lot of engineers, we have a lot mm-hmm. of computer scientists, we have a lot. And there was an article, I don't know if you saw this a couple of weeks ago, that there's a new study showing that the rate of autism is much, much higher in technologically um, heavy areas like Silicon Valley and... Oh, absolutely. Right. And, you know, and I, I do think it's with each of these kids, any of these kids, it's about looking at what they're passionate about, what um, they respond to. And I, I would connect with him through the patterns. I would connect with him through making, selling words. Um, at, at a certain point, I, I didn't try to impose, oh, that's not what a child should be doing. I was like, this is what he likes to do. And this is how I'm going to reach him. You know, it's right. this way. You try to channel all of that stuff yeah. to the, a good direction. Yeah. Well, caller, I thank you for calling in. Um, May, we have um, a few more minutes before we go off the air. And um, it's a great interview. Thank you for calling in, caller. Yeah, I would actually, Priscilla, I'd like to ask you a question. Um, You know, you're an English major. I I was um, an an English professor. I'm reminded of a poem that said something about the meanest flower that grows does off give thoughts that lie too deep for tears. And when I think about you giving up such, you know, your love of poetry and of teaching um, to celebrate your son, I, I wonder how you feel about that, and do you plan to go back? May, that is such a wonderful question. Well, the poem that you just quoted is um, is from is Wordsworth, who right. is yeah. throughout my book, and mm-hmm. I adore teaching. I love teaching, um, and I love literature, but I do not have regrets about leaving tenure track academia because it was very teaching was not really valued as much as it should be. I mean, it was really about publishing articles um, on dry academic subjects and making arguments about literature, and I did not want to be adopting an adversarial stance towards literature. Um, I wanted to be feeling and experiencing, and my experience with Benj helped me to see how low the stakes were in academia, that it was you know, all about making these arguments and getting into this kind of space of contesting other people's arguments about poems, and I said, I really want to be just reading literature and appreciating it. I do want to teach again very much, and I would like to. Um, I have been teaching. I actually taught in a prison. I taught poetry to some inmates in a prison. And I, I taught in public schools, um, and, I, and I, I very much, it's my, it's my great passion. The book is a way of teaching, I think, but um, you know, I, I, do, I do want to do more. Well, and, and I think that's a key message for um, tonight as well. Tonight we learned about hyperlexia. We learned about your book, but we also learned that um, motherhood um, with children with autism can lead to greater and more fulfilling career choices. And I think um, that you know you've managed to create your your a, a teaching world for yourself that's far more pleasant than the competitive and and uh, tenure track of academia. As you <laughs> what would you what would you suggest to other moms who are who have put their careers aside to to help their kids what would you say to them how to how to find their new career that's equally or more fulfilling than the one that they had before well i i would say first of all that the most important work that any of us do is the work of being a parent and um you know i i had to 
take jobs because my ex-husband was not working and I and I longed to be able to spend more time with my child than I was able to. And um, although at the same time, it's the most incredibly difficult work that anyone can do. And so I would say the people who put their careers aside um, in order to take care of their child, that's a brave and amazing choice and I am filled with admiration for that. And just know every single day, one day of taking care of your child, you are doing the most beautiful and incredible work. So that's that's the first thing that I would say. And then the second thing I think is, you know, Benjamin has really taught me um, so much. I mean, my book starts with this quote from Wordsworth about, um, I wish, this is a gloss of it, but it's, you know, I I wish that I, oh, dearest, dearest boy, my heart for better lore would seldom yearn if I could teach the hundredth part of what from thee I learn. You know, he has taught me so much. I hope that I can share with the world um, a slight bit of what he's taught me. And one of the most important things he's taught me is that we do best in our lives. We do the most productive, the most fulfilling, um, and the most helpful to others work if we do what we're passionate about. And we do something that makes us feel that we are helping others to be less alone in whatever, in whatever form that takes. I mean, I think the greatest you know, people in this world are, are teachers and therapists and um, people who advocate for our kids. Mm-hmm. I mean, I give, my, my, my boyfriend is a public school teacher, and, um, you know, I, I just, going to school every day and inspiring kids and um, helping them and supporting them and helping them to become themselves. You know, that's the greatest work we can do. That's a huge thing. I think that, um, let's talk about that a little bit, because um, differentiated teaching is, is pretty new. Mm-hmm. It's really new in this special ed. Well, in, in special ed, believe it or not, also kind of falls into its rut as much as general ed does sometimes. Yep. So yep. how do you see um, school systems changing to become more more differentiated in their teaching methods? Is it all no child left behind, or is it because uh, our kids are increasingly having more and more learning difficulties? Um. You know, May, that is such a great question. I, as a teacher, when I first started teaching at the college level, um, because this is the way that I had been educated in very traditional, high-powered schools where you did every, everyone took the same test. Um, there were certain set ways of evaluating students, and I believed, okay, I'm going to give my students all this test. And as I, in the eight years that I was teaching, I became much more flexible and open so that I would give them many different options for fulfilling a certain requirement or a certain completing a certain assignment. Um, I would allow them to do a creative project, not necessarily an analytical project. Um, it was a little risky for me to do that in a, in a very traditional high-powered school, but I, I became very committed to it. I read Mel Levine's book and um, Howard Gardner and all these books, and I became very invested in that. I think that um, it is so, so crucial um, that all teachers and all teaching gains a greater appreciation of the uniqueness of each learner in that room. And I think that special education teachers have a lot to teach general education teachers about this because in a way, my experience has been that the special ed teachers that I've encountered, I mean, I have my son in a, in a special education school, but my other son is in a CTT classroom. It's a collaborative team teaching with some one special ed teacher and one gen ed teacher with a mixture of different kids. And um, the more that the instruction can be differentiated and individualized, uh, the more those kids flourish. Every one of those kids. You know, some kids may need to memorize by rote. 
You know, some kids may need to be taught in a very traditional way, and others are not going to respond to that. And they need, but it's but it's a huge burden on the teachers. It's very difficult. You know, this is this is the big challenge I think with education right now is we have to figure out a way to pay our teachers better, get the classes smaller so that they can do more individualized instruction. You know, it's hard to do when you have 30 kids in a class and mm-hmm. one teacher, which is what my, my boyfriend is a music teacher, but he has 30 kids in the room with him at one time. Now, let's um, found another question for you. Are you ready to switch gears one more time? Yes, of course. Well, thank you for being you so flexible. <laughs> it's kind of a, what, what would we say, a peripatetic path when our guest oh, comes along. <laughs> but... Um, Repetitive questioning. Do kids with hyperlexia, you, you talked about echolalia, but as they get older, do they become um, repetitive questioners? And if so, how does how do you help though that? Oh, the repetitive questioning, May. You're you're spot on with that. It's um, you know, they can't. I I think part of it comes from anxiety. Mm-hmm. Um, like Benjamin's big issue now. His his his. I would say his greatest issue at this point in his life is managing his anxiety around novelty, um, new situations. And so he'll ask a lot of questions over and over again, like, is it going to be loud if we're going to some situation where it's going to be loud? And I'll say, mm-hmm. I, I, I can't. And, and his greatest anxiety is when he asks me a question and I say, I don't know. I don't know, sweetie. I'm sorry, I don't know. And he'll say, but you have to know. He wants to have a clear, definitive answer that he can process. And I think that's one of the things that I work hardest on with him is helping him to become more flexible. And um, one thing that we did with the questions was that I would have him write the question down and then I would write an answer to it. And for some reason that gave him a greater sense of closure. I think that's linked to the hyperlexia, but he doesn't have to vocalize it as much because he's actually put it down. He can see it. It's concrete. And he can see my answer. Very cool. That's that's a good one. And um, our friend River City is just weighing in on that one. She she uh, she agrees with you. It's anxiety related. Okay, so I think this has been really terrific. Um, hearing somebody else talk about hyperlexia has. I, I think we've all learned quite a bit, and we've also been very affirmed um, that our child's behaviors are, you know, they, they follow a, a similar path. To, they really uh, do. You know, May, one of the things that's been most amazing about this process is when I, when the Newsweek article was published, I got hundreds of Facebook messages and emails from people saying, you described my child and you described my life. And hyperlexia is so under-discussed. Uh, it's it's considered to be so rare, but there's so many people out there who have gone through this. And then I think at the same time, even if your child is not hyperlexic, you've gone through the experience of feeling like your child is struggling to master something that should be coming easily to the child and how painful that is as a parent to mm-hmm. want to help them, to express themselves and communicate in the world. And if we can all support each other, it's so great to get ideas and strategies from each other, and I, I definitely do that on my Facebook page. I ask people questions. Um, so that's a good resource. So, like I'll ask a question one day, what do you do when your child, in the summer, it's harder for kids um, because there's no structure, there's no schedule, and I'll get 50 responses from people with great ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it gives such a sense of community. Well, it's true, and, and one of our fellow moderators just posted something on TweetChat. He's talking about the repetitive questioning again. He said his son does something like this. Hey, Dad, he answers, yeah, Bean. And his son says, nothing. And sometimes he'll do that ten times a day. 
oh, so it's just kind of like a reaching out, like he wants some kind of connection. He just wants the affirmation of his dad. Uh-huh. Yes, I'm, I'm here for you. Our children are just precious in they the are, way they that are. they tell us what they need, even yes. though it may be in a different way than what we would be used to. Well, Priscilla, it's just been a pleasure. Good luck to you and to your book and to your children. And um, thank you so much for sharing. It's almost time for us to to close out tonight. But I just wanted to say thank you to you and thank you to our guest. And um, if you got in onto the interview a little bit late, um, it will be archived at the Coffee Clutch website at www.thecoffeeclutch.com. So um, good night to you all. Please check in with the Coffee Clutch and uh, look up some more of our incredible guests and some of the new shows that will be coming up within the next few weeks. Thank you so much, May. It was absolute pleasure and joy to talk to you, and I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you. Oh, me too. All right. Thanks again, you all, and and, uh, good night. Good night.